morning. We're going to be in 1 Peter 1 this morning. We're starting a new series today in 1 Peter. Um, and in this Bible, if you borrowed one from us this morning, it's on page 656. And if you don't have one, go ahead and take that home with you today. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what a person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Pray with me. Father, we just thank you for your word and how you reveal yourself to us through it. How we, just thankful, we are just thankful for the gospel of your son, Jesus. We just pray that we would read this text in light of that this morning, and that as Davy speaks, your spirit would speak through him uh, to convict us and to sharpen us and to help us to grow together as a community. And we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Uh, those of you, this is your first time, or college students have been gone all summer. Uh, we are glad to have you guys back. Uh, it's always a joy to have you guys join us and be part of our family throughout the school year. Um, as you've heard probably multiple times this morning, uh, we are beginning a new series. Uh, we're going to spend 10 weeks walking through uh, the letter of 1 Peter. Uh, we'll have some breaks along the way, uh, a period of Advent. So 1 Peter is going to take us I'm all the way through the end of January, um, and within a couple weeks, we'll have bookmarks for everybody uh, so that you can kind of keep up to date and know what is coming down the pipeline. Now, uh, 1 Peter is an amazingly powerful letter, uh, though it was written thousands of years ago. As, as we begin to read this text, we see that it is full of timeless truths, and in many ways as we read 1 Peter, um, it feels as if it can be written to us as well as the church in the 21st century. You see, Peter's recipients ultimately are in a, in a pretty similar situation to us today. 
You see, they are exiles within their own country. Their faith in Christ has ultimately ostracized them from their community at large. They're sojourners and strangers in their own backyards. And as we, as we look at the United States today, we can't help but see Christianity getting pushed towards the fringe, getting pushed farther and farther out of what used to kind of be the center stage uh, of the American life. We were a nation that was founded in Christian roots. I mean, on our currency, we have the very words, in God we trust. And yet, we've become a post-Christian nation. We have moved from universal truth to everything is relative. And what's true to you is it's true to you, and that's cool. See, now as Christians, oftentimes we're actually considered those that are closed-minded. We're called bigots, homophobic. We're called hypocrites. You see, we are being pushed to the margins and fringes of society because of what we believe, because of the gospel. And trials now become the norm of the life of a 21st century Christian in America. I mean, I think of last year, Franklin Graham, Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, his son Franklin was, was removed from Facebook for 24 hours because of a post that he made that was of the Bible because it was considered hate speech. Or I think of this very week, how Young Life at Duke University was kicked off of their campus because ultimately their proclamation of a biblical view of marriage. We live in a time where our culture preaches tolerance and yet is intolerant of the gospel. We live in a time where Christians are actually worried in some sense that people are going to find out what they actually believe because at that, they might be ridiculed or shamed or just pushed away. The fear of being a social outcast is real. It's prevalent. We live in a time where we're slow to speak about our Christian beliefs, I think especially in a classroom or university setting, because we don't want to be judged as outdated and just carrying uneducated ideas. We live in a time where when I'm asked the question, what do I do, and I say, oh, I'm a pastor, that conversation completely and immediately ends, and the person just kind of, oh, that's nice, and, and, and walks away or changes the topic. And it's, it's in the midst of this that we see these are what the, these first century Christians are experiencing. And it's in the midst of this that us 21st century Christians are experiencing much of the same thing. You see, this letter is written to actually encourage these exiles to stay the course, to stand firm in the gospel. And Peter actually shows us that a life in exile, it, yes, it's going to be full of trials and hardships, but it is possible to thrive while in exile. And we'll see in the weeks to come that our thriving comes from knowing who we are and whose we are. You see, this is a letter of hope. And it's not a, it's not a hope that we long for or a hope that we're just saying, hey, God, maybe this will come to pass. No, this is a sure hope is a sure hope because it has already been accomplished in the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. The hope is rooted in the gospel. And our hope is rooted in the fact that we serve and are united to the suffering servant, to Christ. And in the midst of this, we actually have reason to rejoice. And so we begin today's topic of 1 Peter by, by looking at ultimately Peter's call to Christians. He's calling us to the reality of hope in the midst of really a messy culture, a messy society. And this morning, we're going to walk through one main idea that kind of flows through the text as a whole. And that's this. Exiled Christians, God gives you a living hope and inheritance through faith. So rejoice in your salvation even in the midst of trials. Even in the midst of trials. So he begins addressing the exiled Christians. In verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's quite the salutation, quite the welcome to this letter. I mean, just imagine if, if our letters or our emails bore any kind of resemblance to this. He gives a word of encouragement to his people. He begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, addressing that Peter is the one that is writing this letter to these people. Who is Peter? Peter is one of Jesus' apostles. He was considered one of the, the close three, Peter, James, and John. They did life with Jesus day in and day out. And, and when Jesus would pull a few to come away, Peter was one of those. Yet we also know that Peter is the one that denied Christ three times. And so Peter is very familiar with trials and hardship and suffering. And as an apostle, this letter comes not simply just as good advice, but it comes as a binding apostolic word for the church, for us today. And he says, it's written to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. I'm on the screen behind me. We'll see who he ultimately is writing to. Here's a map of the ancient Asia Minor. Um, and you can see this is ultimately who he's writing to, which in modern day takes up much of what is modern day Turkey. And ultimately that leaves us with two questions. What is the dispersion, and what does it mean to be elect exiles? See, the dispersion is, is kind of a little tricky to unpack, because the dispersion, or, or the diaspora, that actually refers to a time in history when the, when the Jews were exiled, were, were pulled out of Israel because of a Syrian and Babylonian conquest, and they were completely dispersed from their home. Yet the, the unique thing is Peter's audience is actually primarily Gentiles, people that would not have experienced nor had a history that brought them back to the, the, to the dispersion. You see, what Peter's doing is he's actually speaking about the dispersion metaphorically and saying, hey, you as first century exiles, though you are Gentiles, I'm calling you to look and see that you are connected 
to Israel. You are connected to the people of God. Ultimately, God has chosen you. And he's chosen you, and in what sense does that mean? As, as elect exiles. I mean, simply put, to be elect is to be God's chosen person. Chosen by God, the God of the universe. And so though we might view ourselves as exiles or foreigners, to God, you're chosen. And God ultimately chose them to be an exiled people. He had his hand on them, and he continues to have his hand on them. You see, and and as we think of exile... We realistically think of somebody that's been removed from their native country. We think of Napoleon Bonaparte, who was taken out of France and ultimately lived the rest of his life on St. Helena. Or we think of the Apostle John, who was sent to Patmos to spend the rest of his days. Yet as we've kind of already alluded to, Peter's writing to people that live in their own country. And so once again, he uses this exile term as a metaphor to help these Christians realize who they are. He uses the term exile to distance his readers from from their hold on society at large. You see, he's ultimately saying, hey, your home, our home, is not earth, but it's heaven. And we're just passing through this earth as sojourners and strangers. We are wandering. We are in exile. And they're also in exile because the world finds their faith off-putting. And so they're getting pushed to the fringes. Though they are home, they're not actually experiencing home. To be an elect exile means you've been chosen by God for a different home. So he's ultimately saying, don't view yourself as a citizen of earth because you are a citizen of heaven. We're not looking for a dual citizenship. And Peter actually reveals that the Trinity plays an active and crucial role in what it means to be chosen. He says that the Father foreknows, the Spirit sanctifies, and the Son cleanses. The Father foreknows, so means that God chose them according to and consistent to his plan and purpose. Peter makes it clear that Christians are in the church not simply because of their own decision, but also because of the initiative of God who called them first. And it is through the Father's foreknowledge, through his purposeful plan, that we can actually have hope. That is where our hope is founded in the God of the universe. And he also says to be chosen is to mean that the Spirit sanctifies, which sanctify is a big fancy word to say being made holy, being more restored into the image of God in all its beauty and complexity. You see, the Spirit is alive and active in our lives, convicting us, challenging us, encouraging us. The Spirit is making chosen exiles holy. And lastly, it is, it is the Son of that cleanses. It is Jesus that cleanses. So it's, it's the, in the foreknowing work of the Father in combination with the sanctifying of the Spirit that it results in our obedience to Christ and the sprinkling 
of his blood. As theologian Tom Schreiner says, he says, conversion is not simply an intellectual acceptance of the gospel, nor is it faith with a blank slate. Conversion involves obedience and submission to the gospel. Saying to be chosen is, is to be obedient, to be converted into the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And this sprinkling with the blood is, is ultimately a vivid picture that pulls us back to the beauty of the covenants, which we've actually been walking through over the last chunk of months. See, realistically, he's pulling us back to the Mosaic covenant. He's pulling us back to Exodus 24 when the priests made sacrifices and sprinkled the altar and sprinkled the people of God to make them holy, to show them that there is a sacrificial system in play. Yet we know that unlike the Mosaic covenant, the cleansing blood of Jesus is sufficient and eternal. You see, Jesus brings us into the new covenant with his blood. And so Peter introduces himself to these Christians in Asia Minor to encourage them and tell them they have been chosen for a purpose. They have been chosen by God, sanctified by the Spirit, and cleansed by Christ. In the midst of exile, they are purposeful people. Peter wants his recipients to know who they are in light of the triune God. For it is who they are that their hope is found. And that's the same for us today. See, we, we as Christians, we need to know who we are. You see, Christian identity is based on, our, first, on our relationship with God, and second, our relationship to the world. And we just spent the last few minutes looking at what our relationship with God actually looks like. See, in the eyes of God, we are chosen by the Father. He literally snagged you out of death's grips and said, you are mine. And we're ultimately sanctified through the Spirit. The Spirit is alive and active, working in our lives every day, every moment, every breath. Refining us, making us holy before our God. And we're cleansed through the blood of Christ. Just take a moment to soak in that reality of who you are in God. I mean, you might be here today and feel like no one ever chooses me. Maybe that's in relationships. Maybe that's the simplicity of group projects. Maybe it's just friendships in general. Never feeling chosen. Yet here, as a follower of Christ, you see that you have been chosen by God. The God of the universe chose you. Like, how amazing is that to sit and bask in the beauty of God the Father? In the midst of struggling with self-worth, we look to this verse and see that we are of immense worth in the eyes of our Creator. Now that is love. Yet we need to realize that in the eyes of the world, we are exiles. We are sojourners and strangers. Yet it's important that we don't run from our identity, but we actually wholeheartedly embrace who God has made us to be. And since we are exiles, we're going to experience life as an exile. 
We're going to be sojourners and strangers. We're going to be people who, who ultimately don't have some friendships because of what we believe. We're going to be misunderstood and inaccurately labeled. There's going to be days when we feel alone and isolated. There's going to be days when we just say, Jesus, come now, because I can't do it anymore. We're going to be labeled a bigot, closed-minded, intolerant, potentially just hateful. Last spring, I was, I was walking home uh, from, from campus um, and past the Valley Library, and, and outside there were a few uh, street preachers. I mean, I'm, I'm not necessarily con- condoning the the style in which they went about their rhetoric or the style in which they went about proclaiming the gospel. Yet I took a moment to just sit and to watch this experience, to watch it unfold. And honestly, it was, it was painful to watch because as I saw these men be, be mocked and, and yelled at and yelled over, I just sat there realizing that there's people in this crowd that legitimately hate us, like legitimately hate God and all of his people. That's a sobering reality, but it's reality. You see, the majority of our views on life are not shared with those around us. We are a minority. Yet again, our response is to not hide or stay silent. Just try to fit in, because we were born to be exiles. We were born for this. I've been reading a book uh, to kind of prepare and to think through First Peter. Um, and it's a book by a guy named Elliot Clark, and it's, it's called Evangelism in Exile. I'd highly encourage you guys to re- read the book or pick it up. Um, it's worth it. I mean, in it, he says, we stand opposed to so much of, we, of what we dislike in the world, but then we live much like the world. And so I urge you, brothers and sisters, that the road is long and that the days will be hard, but do not give up on your identity. Stand firm in your God-given and God-chosen identity. Embrace your exile status. And realize that, that you are not alone. You are not isolated, but we as a church are made up of exiles. In this room, we are surrounded, ultimately, as an exiled community together. You see, the local church is a united community that's called to bear one another's burdens and to care for the bruised, broken, and downtrodden. You are not meant to go through life alone. And so we weekly commune together as a people on Sundays, as well as community groups will be beginning in in two weeks Those are ways to actually be part of this exiled community together, to realize that you are knit and formed to be part of this community. We as a church are called to encourage, equip, and exhort one another, for ultimately as we leave those doors every Sunday, we enter the world as foreigners, as strangers, as exiles. Yet Peter not only explains to us that we are chosen, but he actually reveals what we are chosen to He reveals that we receive through God, uh, or what we receive through God, and calls us to respond appropriately. 
He ultimately begins his letter by calling us to praise. For God gives you a living hope and an inheritance through faith. It says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again through a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's powers are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter begins his body and content section of the letter by calling us to bless and praise God. Because God has given us a new birth, and he's given us a living hope and an eternal inheritance. What is our living hope? First off, our our hope is one that is genuine and vital. It is one that is alive and active in contrast to a hope that is empty and vain, that is fleeting. And secondly, it's a hope that is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the true life event. It is a triumph over death, and therefore Christian hope is unending. Christian hope itself actually is rooted in the eternal word of God. Later in this very chapter, Peter says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. A living hope is one that stands strong and vibrant in the midst of life's happenings because of the reality of the resurrection. We hold true to that event, knowing that it changes our life now and for the days to come. Our hope is anchored in the past because Jesus rose. And our hope remains in the present because Jesus lives. And our hope is completed in the future because Jesus will return. Through his new birth, this new birth, not only do we have a living hope, but we have a new inheritance. Peter actually uses a triad. He uses these three statements to explain our inheritance. He's really showing us that our inheritance is eternal, that it cannot be taken. Being born anew, you are no longer citizens of heaven, I mean, citizens of earth, but you are citizens of heaven. And he says, your inheritance is, number one, imperishable. It's free from death and decay. Two, it's unspoilable. It's going to be free from all uncleanliness and moral impurities. And three, it is, it is unfading. It is free from the ravages of time. As commentator Karen Joby says, it is untouched by death unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. It is compounded of immortality, purity, and beauty. And how do we know that that our inheritance is those things? We know because this very verse says God in his power is guarding our inheritance. The God of the universe, the creator God, has a hold on my inheritance. Talk about a secure inheritance. And it says he guards our inheritance through our faith. So we are kept through faith. Our faith is God's way of keeping us. It is a gift. For Peter even says, 
that he alone will be the one that provides us with what we need. Our inheritance is the salvation ready for us. For Peter says, guarding it through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. God has our salvation ready for us. It's important to note that, that Peter isn't saying, well, you guys aren't saved yet as exiled Christians. But rather, the term salvation actually has, has three different tenses to it. So there's the, you, you were saved, you are being saved, and then a f- future, you will be saved. We see that present in Scripture in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Romans. That language is used. You see, Peter is referring to a future glory that believers will enjoy. Our inheritance will be revealed on the last day, but it is ready for us now. That's the God that we serve. And so Peter is ultimately saying, you know what, the appropriate response to what God has done, what he has called us to. You know what that appropriate response is? It's to praise him. It's to bless him. You see, we are people that are called to praise God for who we are and what he has done. First off, we are people to praise God because we are born again. We have been given a new birth. We cannot bore ourselves again. This is the work of the Lord, so may we praise God for that reality. Our salvation is a gift from God. Paul even says in Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Edmund Clowney said, When Christ rose, we rose. In giving life to Christ, God gave life to all those who are united to Christ. You see, Peter's calling us to praise God for the gospel, to praise God for our salvation. So my question is, do you actually praise God for the gospel? Do you actually praise God for your salvation, for your saving faith? I think of the common acronym used for prayer, ACTS. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, many times we're prone to jump straight to the supplication, to the asking of God for things. We voice our needs and our wants to God. And then kind of through that, we'll sprinkle in some thanksgivings to kind of round out our prayers. Yet oftentimes, adoration and confession are simply bypassed. Yet, yet Paul here is making it clear that, that our, our prayers need to be gospel prayers. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, do not skimp on adoration, on adoring God for what he has done and who he is. We worship him for his attributes, his holiness, his mercy, his grace, the fact that he is guarding our salvation. And we praise him for what he has done. Praise him for bringing us from death to life, for your eternal destination has been changed. We were once children of darkness, now we are children of light. I saw a Piper quote this morning that said, prayer is the open admission that without Christ we can do nothing. 
And the adoration is proclaiming that to God. And adoration oftentimes leads us into confession. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, do not give up and just bypass confession. For confession points you to the gospel. For confession points you to our need for a Savior. I encourage you to spend time reflecting on your sin and confessing that to God. Acknowledge that you have wronged God and His grace is ultimately unmerited in our lives. I think of Martin Luther, one of the men of the Reformation who nailed the 95 Theses to the door. Uh, He was known to sometimes spend up to six hours a day in confession. Just for that day alone, thinking of the sins that he had done. And by no means am I calling you to spend six hours in confession. But I'm at least calling you to confess. To look in your life and to see the ways and the errors in which we remove ourselves from God and then actually turn ourselves back to God. That's what we need. For the Apostle John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, these types of prayers align us to the gospel. And so Peter lays the groundwork for explaining who we are in Christ. And it is once we grasp who we are, then he calls us into action. It's kind of a, therefore, in light of all this, go forth and do. He adjusts our gaze from these future glorious realities to then bringing us back to earth in the midst of an exiled community where we experience struggles. Yet it's even in the midst of this that he he shows us, hey, there is a reason to rejoice in the midst of our current circumstances. He calls us to rejoice in your salvation even in the midst of trials. In verse 6, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or what time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were, not ser- they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. See, even in the midst of trials, there's a reason to rejoice. It's your salvation. It's the inheritance that God is guarding you. But that leads us to the question, why is it in God's plan for us to struggle, to experience trials? And Peter pretty much says that trials actually lead to a tried and true faith. Trials and suffering leads to godliness. 
You see, the suffering they experience, the suffering we experience, has an actual purpose, has a refining element to it. For suffering proves the the genuineness of your faith, which Peter says will end in praise, honor, and glory when Christ is revealed. Peter carries the very same sentiment that James, Jesus' brother, says in James 1, when he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Yet Peter does not want us to confuse this testing of faith with, with a failure of their faith. He doesn't want them to think that their, their trials have anything to do with an inadequacy of their faith. And so he uses this, this gold analogy, where Peter compares faith to gold. For he says, for gold, like faith, is refined and proved by the fire. Yet ultimately, however precious gold is, however refined it is, at the, at the end times, at, at judgment, there will be a fire so great than even the purest of metals, the most precious things in this life will cease to exist, will be burned up and perish. But for the faithful followers of Christ, when the fires of judgment come, you're ultimately more precious than gold. You will sustain. Ultimately, genuine Christian faith is more valuable than anything this world has to offer. For it is only through faith in Christ, through the work of Christ, that we can stand before the blaze of God's righteous judgment. And he actually commends these people. He commends these followers of Christ in verses 8 and 9 by saying, hey, though you are suffering, you have not made it into something that you are miserable Christians. He actually says, though you do not see Christ, nor have you ever, you actually continue to believe in him and rejoice. And so he finds joy and praises these men and women for their faith. You see, this should be encouraging to us as believers because we, like these exiles, are in that same experience. For we have never seen Jesus, and yet we believe. And then Peter rounds out this call to rejoice um, in these last two verses, or last three verses, 10 through 12, which kind of feel a little odd. But he's ultimately saying that we have reason to rejoice because of the very time in life, in the world history in which we are born. Because due to the gospel, we are privileged both historically and cosmically. He's saying you're, you're privileged historically because this is what the Old, Test, I mean, the Old Testament prophets have been longing for, have been searching, have been looking in Scripture to understand and define. You see, we live in a time when the prophet's predictions have come to pass, as we even sung about this morning. And it says you are privileged cosmically because the angels do not experience the gospel in the same way we do. They are not recipients of the redemption. This is something that they long for, that they look at in awe and marvel. The prophets long for this day, and the angels marveled at God's work through Christ. But we, we actually get to experience it. We get to experience Christ in ways that they never were able to. 
It's a call to rejoice that you get to experience salvation through Christ, to actually know the Son of God. And so he's saying, in light of who you are, in light of what we have been given, rejoice in your trials. You see, in the suffering of your faith, you're actually aligning yourself to Christ. And I couldn't think of a better reason to rejoice than being linked arm in arm with my Savior. I think of the apostles in Acts 5. They were arrested and beaten by the Sanhedrin for proclaiming Christ. And when they were released, they left rejoicing because God counted them worthy of suffering dishonor for his name. When we suffer, we actually participate in the sufferings of Christ. You see, for the gospel message is one of suffering. Jesus, the suffering servant spoken of in Isaiah, bore the ultimate suffering by being separated from his father and hung on a cross for our sake, for our sin. Christ endured the ultimate suffering and the wrath of God so that that we wouldn't have to. You see, the very symbol of our faith is a cross. The very symbol of our faith is a sign of the suffering that Christ endured. And we know that ultimately all Christians suffer. How's the saying go? You are either currently suffering, coming out of suffering, or preparing to enter suffering. So the reality is you might be called a fool or a bigot or a laughed at for what you believe. You might be told not to share your beliefs with people. You might be blocked from message boards. You might be misunderstood and accurately defined and and judged, knowing that in the end it doesn't matter what you say, it's not going to make a difference. You might not get certain jobs because you're open about your faith. You might be shunned and avoided by certain communities. And the reality is, as parents, we have to continually fight for God's truth in the midst of a culture, an educational system that pushes against the truth of God. These sufferings and these trials are part of everyday life. You see, our our culture is shifting. Christianity doesn't have the cultural dominance that that it once had. Yet in the midst of a a changing culture, in the midst of this suffering, there's one thing that doesn't change, and that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, worldly trials do not affect our eternal reality. We experience momentary suffering for Christ, but eternal bliss through Christ. So as exiles, I urge you to cling to the reality that we have been given a new hope, and an eternal inheritance in God through faith. So we may be people who rejoice in the midst of suffering, for our salvation is secure. And when we know where we are headed and we know that reality, the struggles of life are minuscule in the grand scheme of the coming glory. For as scripture says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen 
are eternal. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we are beyond thankful for who you are. Lord God, we are thankful that you have called us, you have chosen us to be elect exiles in such a time as this. And God, I pray that we will not run from this calling, not run from this identity, but cling to it as sojourners and strangers called to live as exiles, called to proclaim your goodness and your grace and your mercy in the midst of a generation that could care less about you. And Lord God, I pray that we as a church really surround and envelop ourselves and be the church together for your namesake, for your glory. Lord, we rejoice in our salvation and we praise you that through your son Jesus, we can call you Father and we can stand before your throne praising you. In your name, amen.